0: So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Jeff. It's always good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, so you're a pretty interesting guy, and there's many things we can talk about, considering you've had quite an interesting career in marketing and understanding people. So I'm going to talk about the thing that I've read about in your latest book, and that's the decline of J.Crew as an active J.Crew client Who's basically? I only buy clothing from two places: J. Crew and a British tailor. When I read your story about J. Crew and the decline of J. Crew, maybe you can, you know, is there any hope for J. Crew? I mean, that's a starting point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely hope for J. Crew. I know there's hope for J. Crew because I barely, uh, I just barely put that content into the book, and there's a lot of people who read it before a book gets published. Uh, I have an agent and then it gets shopped to multiple publishers and there's editors. I barely even want to include that story because it just it didn't mean that much to me. And I think there is great hope for J. Crew because everybody seems to gravitate towards that story. And I think the reason is J. Crew is an incredible brand. Absolutely, everybody loves J. Crew. I've never met anyone who doesn't at least like J. Crew. Like, what yeah. what's to dislike, right? They dislike? they give you your staples. They give you your white shirts. They give you some some more interesting stuff. But look, man, they they came across hard times and, and they didn't need to, right? They they filed for Chapter Eleven during peak COVID. And a lot of brands did, but I don't think it was COVID that caused it. I don't think COVID really caused that much uh, bad or good stuff, really, in the business world. I think they just expedited the process for about seven years. So J. crew was, was absolutely headed in the wrong direction. And, and, and let's just juxtapose it for a second, right? There was a moment where they were crushing it, where yeah. you probably fell in love with them. And they had Mickey Drexler, who used yeah. to run The Gap, was running it. Uh, he had Jenna Lyons as the president who, if she had a fan club, I'd be the president. She was just absolutely yeah, she's incredible. I agree. Yeah. Amazing. And one of the things I loved about her is she would take care of very little items that led to a really big difference in not only the consumer experience, but also in the story for the brand. For example, She would pay very close attention to the lighting, not just getting the lighting right, but the actual lighting fixtures that sit above the tables and the displays. She cared about all those little elements because she understood how much information we're exposed to on a daily basis. I think the human brain is exposed to something like 11 million bits of information every second. Obviously we can't process all that information. We become incapacitated. We would die, right? So we look for these shortcuts and and Jenna understood these shortcuts like beautiful lighting. Mm -hmm. Beautiful lighting gives a shortcut to the fact that not only is this clothing pretty nice, but it's pretty high quality. You're looking for those shortcuts as a consumer. But what happened was eventually they got a little tired of Mickey and Jenna not fully understanding digital. And they brought in new leaders. Mm-hmm. And the example that I bring up in the book was, like you, I'm a J. Crew customer. Nobody's going to accuse me of being the most original, most powerful sure. dresser ever. But like, you know, it's the place you go for a nice blazer, a nice shirt. It's good enough for the weekends, good enough for the week, good enough for work. There's a lot of guys and gals shopping there. And we would walk by those locations. You know, there's one on Fifth Ave. There's one in your local mall. You pop in there and you get basically what you need or an impulse item. But what happened is I started getting an email almost every single day, twenty yes. percent off the next day, thirty percent off the next day, forty percent off the next day, fifty percent, forty percent, thirty over and over. Buy, buy, buy. Click, click, click. Get it now, now, now. And what happened was I started getting scared to buy from J. Crew, right? What happens if I went in and I bought three white shirts and a blazer only to find out if I actually opened my email that day, I would have gotten 40% off. So instead of feeling empowered, I felt like a fool shopping from them because I could miss those discounts. Ultimately, you can understand why email can be so powerful. Blasting out literally like a million emails is as close to free as anything in marketing. As long as you have the list, all your customers, they signed up, so the metrics will always look like it's the most uh, a powerful tool for driving return on investment because the cost is minimal, people click, buy, get the discounts. But what Jenna and Mickey would have realized that J. Crew's new management team didn't realize is every single one of those clicks, every single one of those purchases, every single one of those emails that look so powerful and so profitable was damaging the brand that 40% off was sending a cognitive shortcut much the same way when Jenna was there, the beautiful lighting fixture was sending a cognitive shortcut. So ultimately at the end of the day, the audience wasn't empowered. The brand was damaged and they had to file for, for chapter 11. And look, it's not about how to leverage these individual tools. All of these individual tools are extraordinarily important and email is extraordinarily important, but you can't just look at the data. You have to take all the different data points from all the different touch points in that consumer journey, ladder them up, not to just look at data, but to look at the insights. And I think that's what was missing. They had the data, but they didn't have the insights.
0: Well, that's a very good story because I obviously have been a part of that journey as a customer. I've seen that decline. I've seen the lack of attention. You notice these little things when you go to the store. In fact, I don't go to the stores anymore because it's not such a pleasant experience. You see it with the way customer service agents, whatever they call them at J.Crew, now talk to customers. There's been a whole sea change in the way things are managed. You made the point that they have the data, but they didn't look at the insights. Now, I want to go one step further here. It sounds as if it's not a marketing problem. It's a business problem. There's no clear distinction between them. And I think that's one of the points you are trying to make is that what is marketing and what is the business? It seems as if it's the same decision point. Do you think companies mess that up whereby they leave marketing to marketers when marketing is a business decision? You have to think about what the customer wants, understand all those touch points, build products that customers love. So, why is marketing so broken? It's not just J. Crew. Look at uh, Victoria's Secret. They're the only people. That found a way to put beautiful models on a catwalk and nobody turns up to watch them. Mm-hmm. How do you get that wrong? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, I I love it, man. You you summarize the thesis statement in, entirely. Like I do not see any fundamental difference between marketing and business. They're one and the same. And, and those who are really trained in marketing went to school for marketing. For me, it was the big epiphany, right? When when I was a kid, and and look, I was a terrible college student. I barely graduated. The last class I went to was Marketing 101 yeah. because yeah. when I went to college, I thought marketing was advertising. How do you tell a great ad yeah. in an 8.5 by 11 print ad or a 30-second TV spot? And I got introduced to the concept of the four Ps, product, oh, price, yeah place in promotion and literally like it to me at that moment it felt like one of those scenes in a cheap sitcom where the whole world just rushes before your eyes and all of a sudden you get clarity and for me i was like all right i got it i got it figured out and i literally never went back to another class again i showed up for midterms i showed up for finals and i started my own businesses trying to get involved in marketing and what you realize with the four p's is that's business, right? Product, price, place, and promotion. And we just got way too focused as an industry on the promotion, right? Discounts, sales, 30-second TV spots, direct mail, when it also comes down to getting the right price, getting the right product, and getting the right place. And the place has been the most challenging and the most exciting uh, area for those of us who do work in marketing because place is no longer hey let's have a great retail store it's about everything it's your facebook your instagram your TikTok, your website your app the data that ties it all together with the retail store it's the customer service in the store it's the customer service when you pick up the phone it's the human beings and the bots like the place is the most complicated and most exciting place and it's where most brands continue to fail over and over and over again.
0: What do you think they fail at the place segment? What are they getting wrong? there? What's broken today that was working before?
1: Yeah, great question. See, it really comes down to the fact that technology enabled us to not have to worry about that consumer journey. And when I talk about technology, we barely think of it as technology. But I'm really talking about television. And what we were able to do with television was create these amazing brand stories in the 30 second spot, use that technology to get it into everybody's living room, use content to drive very specific audiences. So, if you want to sell Nike, you've got ESPN, or earlier than that, you know, there was the day of the soap operas that was largely created by CPG. So, you're starting to use technology to tell your story and narrowed down your audience. And there was a time where you could tell great 30-second spots and people would believe it. But of course, you know, we just took advantage of it as, as an industry, right? And one minute, everybody trusts the ads. And the next minute you see Fred and Barney and they're smoking cigarettes and telling you they're wonderful. And then your family members are waking up and getting cancer. And you realize that businesses lied. And, and you, you saw it across all different industries where we just abused this privilege of being in people's living rooms. And then what happened is, as we know, digital completely exploded it, and it wasn't simply about the ability to take these interruptions, or 30-second spots in our print ads, and turn them into digital versions, right? So the wrong answer was, let's turn TV ads into pre-rolls, print ads into banner ads, junk mail into spam. That was the wrong way to activate on digital the right way to activate on digital is to understand that brands are now completely transparent people know the truth and they know it in real time if your product is new and improved they know it if you say it's new and improved but it's not they know it if it's a great product a crappy product good customer service crappy customer service they know it and they know it in real time so really the solution is what you mentioned earlier it's not about changing just your marketing it's about changing the totality of your business and how your resources are deployed
0: well that's brilliant so let's unpack this for the listeners right because i'm seeing multiple points here and i want to unpack each one and then i want to get to a question here so the first thing you mentioned is that previously it seemed as if brands almost had a monopoly on attention through the fact that you had these three big television networks and everyone was glued to them. And of course, there's some version of that in other parts of the world. And then what's happened when the, I would say, I wouldn't say disintegration, but when competition arrived through digital, brands simply saw digital as another platform where they deployed the same thing without understanding that digital changed the way consumers can think and have access to information. And like Twitter, for example, you know, someone says one thing and that goes viral and everyone knows what's happening. So the problem, the way I understand it and the way you're explaining it, is that some companies have understood that now consumers are far more capable of making more informed decisions and they've changed to treat customers like they're smart by making better products. But other companies are just basically putting lipstick on a pig for lack of a better word. So they're simply doing what they're always doing, saying it's bad, but they're not actually changing who they are. So this sounds as if it's not a marketing problem at all, but this is the business strategy problem.
1: It's a business strategy, leadership, culture problem. And it's, it's a real challenge. And, and with all challenges, as we know, it's, it's a real exciting uh, opportunity. And I think you have to understand the antagonist in the story before you can actually come up with powerful solutions and the antagonist in the story is what i refer to as the machine there's a machine in the world of advertising that keeps pushing us towards doing more and more of the same if you want to win awards if you want to get promotions there's literally a city in the south of france con that turns itself over to the entire advertising industry every year and you know how you get there you make silly 30-second tv ads and yes you can do great things with 30-second tv ads and you can do great things with traditional advertising and traditional advertising is not dead that false eulogy has been written before you can still do great things with traditional advertising and when i say traditional i also mean digital youtube pre-rolls banners Uh, any, Any time that you want to tell a story. We're just asking those stories to do way too much. And we're going to continue to lean into and be addicted to those traditional interruptive techniques because of that machine. If you want a promotion, if you want an award, if you want that trip to south of France, you do it by generating more interruptive stories and many of the leading brands, the brands that I love, the brands that are getting exponential growth, the brands that that a lot of young people that you probably love, like brands like Patagonia, for example, Mm -hmm. that we're almost sick of hearing about them. But at the same time, nobody's really stealing their playbook, which is less about not just fictitious stories, right? It's, it's less about storytelling using traditional interruptive techniques. And it's more about looking at the entire journey, finding points of friction in that journey, and empowering people along the way. And sometimes, maybe a little bit more traditional in the sense that you are telling a story, and it's very emotional. But a lot of the times, it's something much more granular and much more functional along the way in that consumer journey. And, you know, one of the great expressions, apparently there's a poster that says that I've never actually seen it, which is no amount of advertising can get me to eat your crappy pizza. And I just <laughs> I love that one. And, you know, as you and I know, actually, great advertising can get us to eat that crappy pizza, but only once. And we're not gonna do it again. And we're gonna tell all our friends about how crappy that pizza is. So back to your point, it's not just about marketing and advertising and storytelling. It's about the totality of how brands operate.
0: So as a business leader, I see there's two things I would have to do if I want to internalize your message, which makes a lot of sense to me. The first thing is that I've got to change the culture of the company to make sure that we are truly transparent we truly believe in what we're doing. And we are actually putting the customer first by building services and products that makes their lives better. Yep, That's the first thing. I have to do that. And that's a big task. The second thing I've got to do is I've got to find a way to communicate this in a way that's authentic and empowering. You haven't used the word empowering, but it sounds as if that's what you are referring to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's the whole key to it. The, the subtitle in the new book is is building brands through empowerment instead of interruptions and empowerment is is straightforward right i think it's been in used and abused a little bit by sort of the yoga crowd and maybe we hear that word too much but the truth of the matter is it's the most powerful word that i know of in particular as it relates to business and building brands and it's really simply about helping people improve their lives one small step at a time that's what empowerment is like You know, some people going back to that Patagonia example, they look at that Patagonia example and they're like, oh, it's about a green movement. We need to hug the trees. We need to save the manatees. But people don't wake up in the morning wanting brands to hug the trees and save the manatees. If we all do it, that's great. But using your terminology, it's not really authentic. But there is a way where you can authentically empower me. Maybe it's helping me learn how to cook a great meal for my family. Maybe it's helping me learn how to play guitar. Maybe it's helping me figure out how to have a better vacation. Maybe it's helping me figure out how to get out of debt or drive a safer car. Right. There's all these ways that, you know, that's why companies were built in the first place was to improve people's lives. Right. You improve people's lives, you create value and you get money in return for that value. It's a value exchange. So it's really about going back to those roots of what's business about, and it's about improving people's lives one small step at a time. And sometimes it's in the product, and sometimes it's in the service, and sometimes it's in the customer service. But when we look at it through an advertising lens, it's also about storytelling, but sometimes that storytelling is very functional in making sure that every single touch point is not filled with friction that holds you back, but it's filled with tools and content that propels you forward.
0: So that means that a company that is doing something wrong in inverted commerce, whether it's damaging the environment and so on, it faces a pretty difficult uphill battle because no matter how much it tries to spin it, the consumer is always going to know. And the investment community is always going to know. And it's not just about losing customers, it's also seeing your share price being hammered. It's a a double whammy, right? We are talking about customers, but lower share price, less money for investment it's it's really hard hole to dig yourself out of so you use the example of patagonia assuming the company understands this and is doing all the right things what are the touch points of effectively empowering consumers through marketing what are the things you need to do
1: well let me give you an example that literally happened to me this morning i went to go buy the paul mccartney the new paul mccartney book is this it's about a $100 book. It's this beautiful book, all with the story of his lyrics. And I went to buy it on Amazon, as most people will will do. And it turns out they're out of stock. So I woke up early. It's a Christmas gift for a family member. And uh, I went to barnesandnoble.com. So congratulations, Barnes and Noble. You got over one major piece of friction. You've got the book in stock, and you can deliver it before the holidays, which Amazon can't do this is an amazing opportunity for barnes and noble like how often does this happen to them not very often right amazon has been eating their lunch congratulations you got me and i happen to be a book buying addict so i got that book and i looked up i had 18 books in total in my shopping cart but one of the things that happened there was two things that happened along the way one of them was the search engine barely functioned. Like when was the last time you had a bad experience on Amazon search, right? Probably decades ago, like yeah. Amazon search is incredible. You type in what you're looking for, it delivers. Time and time again, I was clicking on Barnes and Noble search, not getting strong results. Or eventually I found books that I wanted. But I'm holiday shopping. Like this is a great moment for me. I want to get it all done now. You know, it's it's you know it's three days after Thanksgiving. You know, this is the hot day to shop. There was no like, hey, recommendations. I just bought four books from you. You've got tons of data on me. There's no collaborative filtering. There's no recommendations on books. So your search engine is off. Your recommendations are off. I did go over to amazon and noticed actually the prices were better on amazon but whatever i actually got over that hurdle i was happy to actually throw some business at barnes noble but how much money were they losing in the sense that the search didn't work then things got crazy all of a sudden the site went down i literally (laughs) could not complete the purchase i took a screenshot of it because i'll post it on on social or something later today the site went down i tried to reload it I, i literally not get the site up and running so what did i do i did the same thing that anybody would do i went over to amazon tried to remember as many of those books as i could recall and put it onto the amazon uh uh, cart and completed my purchase about four hours later barnes and noble was back up and running i was able to get that uh that paul mccartney book congratulations you got one expensive purchase from me but you could have had 18 and you could have had a brand evangelist. I could be on this podcast right now speaking to your listeners around the world, talking about how amazing this Barnes and Noble experience was, but I'm doing the exact opposite. And it makes me feel sad. Like I'm a book person. I love independent bookstores. I love Barnes and Noble. I wanted them to succeed, but the lesson there is they created friction in the consumer journey. And they created friction at the absolute worst place possible. At the moment I was pulling out my wallet, I couldn't complete the purchase. And I don't have the number memorized, but it's it's over a trillion dollars in goods are left in shopping carts every year because people just can't complete transactions. And this is, you know, 2021. I understood 20 years ago when we were just trying to figure out your basics of technology and usability, but there shouldn't be over a trillion dollars left in shopping carts. And it goes back to your point earlier, which is you gotta get your culture right, you gotta get your leadership right. Because if the culture and the leadership said, making things easy and empowering for customers would be our number one priority. They would have spent enough money on the technology to have it user friendly, to have a strong search engine, to have a strong recommendations engine, ensure as heck not have it crash. Amazon doesn't crash. They've got a lot more visitors. Like. So how do they do it? It's about getting their culture right, and their culture isn't necessarily a fun place to work. I would assume. I'm sure it's really no, hard. Jeff Bezos really. is, you know, clear about that. But it is a culture really focused on this notion of how do we empower the audience? How do we make everything as transparent and user friendly as available? So you know, if you're running a business, the the lesson there is it's not simply about. Uh, Thinking empowerment is important. It's not simply about thinking user-friendly and technology is important. It's about putting your money where your mouth is. It's so easy to go back to what we talked about earlier, invest in some great 30-second TV ads or print ads, or maybe it's now on social media, put the right message in the right place at the right time, but not look at the totality of the journey. So you get a lot of people excited about a brand but you're not turning your prospects into customers and you're not turning your customers into evangelists.
0: Now, I like this answer. It's a very good answer and I wanna just unpack it for the audience. For one, you didn't talk about advertising and you didn't talk about marketing. You talked about it purely from what is good for the customer and the customer's experience, right? Because I was expecting an answer of, well, this ad was the best ad because it did four things, but there's nothing about the ad. It was about, hey, it's all about reducing friction and making your customer's life happy, right? I mean, you, you you know what you wanted. You just wanted someone to give it to you. In fact, let's just give you that book. You are looking for recommendations. You are looking for them to help you by telling you things that you didn't know that maybe you wanted to know. So that's the first thing. And I hope everyone listening to this thinks about that. It's not about just the advertising. It's about making your customer's life easier. The second thing, which we didn't talk about, but I want us to unpack this a little bit and talk me through your experience with clients on this. So you've got Barnes and Noble. I like Barnes and Noble because they have a coffee shop inside their stores. And I like to look at books and drink coffee, right? So I'm that kind of guy. But I agree their website is not a pleasant experience. But here's the thing that I'm struggling with. And and talk me through your experience with clients on this. Someone at Barnes and Noble is paid well how many employees does Barnes and Noble have a couple of thousand I'm guessing about 10 15,000. I don't know the number but there's a couple of thousand people there is nobody using that website to know it's not working correctly <laughs> that's, that's the part I'm struggling with so if if you're in the business of selling books you've got an IT department or digital department their job is to come in every day and work on this website and test it how can they not know it's so bad
1: Man, that that is a, a great question. So before I worked in advertising, I, I had a really fortunate experience of working in market research and, and was lucky enough to be right place, right time, help pioneer the field of internet research. And one of the things that I did was a ton of usability testing. And the one thing, it seems so funny that, that brands would even have this question, but they would wonder if, if their sites were too user-friendly and they were treating their customers like they were
0: user friendly i've never heard that one before oh yeah man this is
1: you know this is the early day of the internet people want to know like you know is it too maybe they wouldn't say user friendly but is it too streamlined is it too obvious right is the click now button too Too? uh uh trite you know it's in in one thing i saw and i saw a lot of emotions like i did thousands and thousands of quantitative surveys and hundreds of hundreds of qualitative interviews and usability and you'd see some great emotions you people see people stand up and pound the table and and talk about what they want but i never saw one person ever not even close stand up pound the table and say this is too user friendly you're treating me like i'm stupid people want there was a great book back in the day it said um don't make me think was the title of the book and yeah. I just thought that was one of the smartest titles of a book ever. Like people just wanna reduce their cognitive load. We're just exposed to way too much stimulus. So the more we can reduce that cognitive load, the more we're empowering people, the more we're building psychological momentum, the more we're taking them on that journey, starting at prospect all the way through evangelists. But to your point, it really comes down to culture and priorities because they get it when that site crashes, People are rolling their eyes when they're up on their site or they get a call from their mom or their dad or their uncle and they can't complete the purchase on their website everyone knows it but someone at the very top has to say this is our number one priority how do we make this as user friendly and as stable as possible and and frankly i think i agree with what you're saying i think barnes and noble has done a world-class job of this when you think about their actual retail experience I love going to Barnes and Noble. The reason I found out about that Paul McCartney book is I was in a Barnes and Noble last week. I was traveling. I didn't want to have to travel with a heavy book, but I saw it out on the counter. Like I think the Barnes and Noble experience is absolutely world-class. They merchandise, they have coffee shops, they have people there to help, you know, they, they publish their own classic books. It's an amazing experience and I give them full credit. And I get it, man, building a world class website for Barnes and Noble. That's got to be one of the toughest jobs in the world. I couldn't even come close to figuring out how to do that. And it's not what our agency does for a living. So I'm, I'm definitely sympathetic and I'm empathetic, but it really comes down to dollars. Are you willing to allocate enough dollars to make sure that there's no friction in that consumer journey?
0: Now, obviously, I'm not privy to Barnes & Noble's strategy and how they're thinking about things. And of course, as you mentioned, they do many things, right? Their stores are a wonderful experience. But let's just use them as an example and not in a negative way, just to to understand the challenges companies face in a very competitive world. It seems as if, as you correctly said, that someone at the top of Barnes & Noble has decided that the website is not a priority because they're not allocating enough effort to that, right? Mm-hmm. So here's a situation where they're offering something just to have parity with Amazon. But at the same time, they, they're they offering something that they're not investing in. So they're drawing their customer into a bad experience, which raises the question, should you play in a space unless you want to play full on?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question my gut instinct is you have to be there and they've made it a priority it's a it's a good website it's it's probably better than 99 percent of websites out there in a lot of ways just unfortunately it wasn't built for the volume that they're getting today right this this one you know this 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 is one of the biggest shopping days of the year so they've done a great job they're just obviously not investing quite enough they'd have a stronger search engine they'd have stronger collaborative filtering and they'd they'd be much more stable on these really busy days so i do give them credit and that's the problem it's just like the bar is so high right and it's not just amazon like you know if you're running a a listener right now and you're running a small business you know it might just be you know let's say a local pool cleaning business right it might be a local retail store It, it could be anything you have to realize that the competition isn't just the competition; it's the bar that's been set by companies like Amazon, by companies yes. like Uber, like companies like Warby Parker, who have really removed all the friction in the entire consumer journey. And you know, you can look at Uber. You know, that's not a company whose sort of uh, purpose and positioning and making the world a better place like. They're not really nailing that. Lyft is better than Uber, but who wants a world without Uber, right? They remove friction in three clicks, you got a car right out front. Or you can look at Warby Parker, that's a better example, where they've, they're just hitting on all cylinders, right? Their retail experience is world-class. The customer service people who work in those stores, they're amazing. There's like six people waiting to help you out. They've got huge smiles on their face. Uh, their POS and their POP, it's all connected through one unified device, Give them your email address. They understand who you are and what you've bought before. You know, it's really based upon making me as happy as possible, empowering me to strengthen my vision, make me look better than I should look by looking at using somebody else's pair of glasses. You know, we almost forget about the fact that the brand was based upon this notion of if you buy a pair of glasses, they will donate a pair of glasses to people in need, right? I'll tell you one thing we came across when we were doing research for the book that was amazing is they realized how important it was going to be to connect their stores to their website. And they had 20 different vendors come in with different POS technology to connect those two touch points. And they decided that none of them were good enough and they built it all from scratch, right? And that sort of goes back to the Barnes and Noble example and it sort of goes back to the culture example. When you say the most important thing is empowering customers, it dictates how your dollars are going to be spent.
0: So you said something that's very, very insightful. I'm going to pull it out for you. And it's actually one of the smartest things anyone has ever said to me on this podcast. And I want people to understand this. So when I was a corporate strategy partner, and you're advising all these Fortune 1000, Fortune 500 companies on strategy and competition, and we talk about competition, who's the competitors they need to worry about, or who are the companies outside their competitive sphere that could be a substitute. So we talk about substitutes and competition, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. But you said something that's quite interesting. What you said is that you're not just competing with your competitors and substitutes, you are competing with the level of service that someone else has set that now your competitors expect from you. So for example, you know, when I'm, I'm a car guy and I like to go to the Bentley dealership and the Rolls Royce dealership and so on. And I was there one day and I told them I'm hungry, I gotta to go to a restaurant. They said, "Well, oh, tell us what you want, we'll get it for you. Do you think I can ever go to, your t- to a Toyota dealership after that? Yeah. So, yeah. so this is the point, right? It's not as if you're competing with Amazon only if you're in e-commerce. You're competing with Amazon if you do anything on the internet because they've set the bar for what to experience when you do anything digital. And that's a very important insight because very often when I talk to clients, they talk about who their competitors are, but they've got to talk about what is the competitive experience they're trying to create. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes even more scary because how do you compete against an Amazon when it comes to e-commerce? How do you compete against, uh, let's say, four seasons when it comes to that you know, great concierge service when you arrive at the hotel? And then it becomes scary because if you know who your customers are and you know the experiences they are having, you've got to really prioritize in terms of what you want to do and be the best at it or don't even bother being in the game. And I think that's what a lot of companies do. They want to just play in the game because some benchmark told them you have to do this because your competitor does it but they don't really invest. And that's where they come undone because Barnes & Noble is is a good company. I like that company. I like the store experience, but they haven't been able to get congruency with what's happening on the internet. And you see a lot of companies doing that, right? Yeah, here's here's an
1: example. It's interesting. You're a car guy. I'm a bit of a restaurant guy. I I grew up as a cook. I used to think I was going to be a restaurant. I'm also a restaurant
0: guy, don't worry. Yeah,
1: I I just love the entire experience because everything is so tangible. And one of the examples I'll give is let's say you walk into a restaurant and you've never been there before. You've got some friends with you. You heard a few halfway decent things. You're not quite sure you walk in, you go to the bathroom. And it's disgusting. And we've yeah. all been there, right? We've all yeah. been to that restaurant. You know, this isn't our fancy Saturday night, whatever. And you go in the bathroom, it smells bad. There's paper towels on the floor. There's toilet paper on the floor. There's It's, it's visibly dirty. What are we thinking at that point? We're not thinking, ew, this bathroom is dirty. We're thinking, ew, this whole restaurant is screwed up right And on a subconscious level. What you're thinking is if this is what you're allowing me to see what's going on with the more important places that I can't see because I can't see the kitchen, Mm -hmm. but that must be disgusting if you're letting me see this and what it comes down to is we're all looking for shortcuts. The whole thing about life is shortcuts. If you, If you got distracted by everything you would literally die right there's something that monkeys have it's called repetition suppression right so actually let me let me dive into that there's a great example I love this one that it shows the problem of, of advertising there's an experiment that's been done dozens and dozens of times with live monkeys and what they do is they can put a probe into a conscious monkeys brain and then they can play it some stimulus. And what they do is they play this loud, blaring, obnoxious sound. And with that probe, they're able to take a readout of what happens in the monkey's brain. And what happens in the monkey's brain when they play that loud blaring obnoxious sound is the monkey's brain responds very strongly and very negatively, which is not surprising. Yes. And then they repeat the experiment. They keep the probe in there. They play that loud, blaring, obnoxious sound. They look at the the response, and the monkey continues to respond very strongly and very negatively to that awful stimulus. Here's where it gets really exciting, which is if you repeat that experiment just a few times, the readout looks like the side of a cliff. The monkey's brain stops responding so strongly to that negative stimulus. Because the monkey recognizes on a subconscious level, it cannot continue to respond that strongly to the stimulus. It needs to focus on more important things, food, water, shelter, family, fornication. If it doesn't, the monkey will literally die. And the principle is called repetition suppression. The monkey's brain just blocks out all of that excessive stimuli. The reason that this is so exciting for us, those of us who work in advertising, is that we are that disgusting stimuli. We are that loud, blaring, obnoxious sound. As you probably already know, the human brain is exposed to 5,000 branded messages every single day that's a branded message almost every 2.7 seconds we're awake that's sitting on an exponential curve because the previous generation was only exposed to 2000 branded messages every day so what are we looking for we're looking for shortcuts going back to your example going to a rolls-royce or a bentley dealer no offense but my gut instinct is if you were to look under the hood of that car that engine would look beautiful but you probably don't know exactly how that engine functions so you're looking for certain shortcuts you're looking for the sound of the door when it closes you're looking for the price tag you're looking for the aesthetic of the interior and you're looking for the customer service when the gentleman or the lady who helped you out said we will help you and get you food there's no reason for you to be hungry that's the positive shortcuts the negative shortcuts are the example that I gave like the dirty bathroom so you have to think about the journey that somebody goes on before they buy a product. Continuing with your example about cars, research shows that you tend to go on a 13 hour journey. When you go to buy a car, you stretch it over months and months, but you spend about 13 hours. So let's say you've got a great TV campaign. You use a reach and frequency model just to the point where it gets annoying. Let's say you expose somebody to 10 30 second spots. Great. I think we can all agree that'll be pretty effective and borderline annoying. And let's say you hit them with Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and some print ads, all of those exposures, let's say it all adds up to 10 minutes. Okay, well now we've got 12 hours and 50 minutes left in that consumer journey. And it used to be back in the good old days, well, let's leave that up to the car dealerships to build a relationship. Let's have the human beings pick people up from that moment and close the deal. But now that relationship is largely digital. And what's really exciting is, people who used to just do traditional advertising that affected that 10 minutes can now do all sorts of exciting things using content, creativity, and technology to stretch across that additional 12 hours and 50 minutes.
0: That's very interesting. I like the way you explain that. So basically you've explained why most people don't like their in-laws because they just talk to them in a negative way. Just bluntly, right? so you've explained exactly. the science of why people don't like their in-laws. But let's dig into this. Right? This is quite interesting because I was on LinkedIn or somewhere recently. I think it was YouTube this morning. And I noticed there was this ad following me around. Somehow this guy had figured out how to use cookies and this ad follows me everywhere. I find the ad irritating, to be honest, because it always shows up no matter where I go on the internet the odds are I would probably end up buying from this guy purely because he's there and nobody else is there. But it's almost as if I I'm I feel a little bit offended that I have to make the purchase. And I'm probably never going to go back to this guy because it, it wasn't a pleasant experience for me. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying here is that just going back to J Crew and companies that are involved in the same thing, right? When J. Crew was running those ads every single day and sending out emails, it probably saw initially A jump in revenue. But it didn't understand the impact it was having on its customers in the sense that it was pushing some away and bringing in the bargain hunters. And it also had another psychological effect that I had not thought about, whereby if I buy from J.Crew today, I'm going to feel pretty stupid in one week when I see I'm getting an ad when J.Crew could have known I already bought from them and not have sent me the ad so I don't feel bad about it. So so there's two things here. One is you've got to understand the quality of your revenue and profits. It's not just whether it goes up. It's what is it doing to your business? That's the one thing. The second thing, and it's a bit more technical, is that, and I I never understood this about JCR and other companies. If I bought from them, why would they send me an ad again when they could have an IT system or digital system that tags me and says, hey, Michael bought this one week ago. So don't send him an ad is telling him he's going to be stupid because it's now 30% lower. It's a very simple thing, but I see that with a lot of companies they don't use tagging. It's a very basic thing. It's it's
1: analogous to the dirty bathroom, right? So let's say it's you know uh, a, an expensive purchase and they want you to buy more of it, right? Let's say it's a, a home appliance, costs hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. We all have multiple appliances in our home well what is that signal they sent right you just bought that washer dryer and then three days later you're seeing an ad for that washer dryer but their message is like we've got the most advanced technology like i don't know you can't even get your instagram advertising technology right so what makes me think that your washer dryer is that great and you know frankly you and i we work in this industry so maybe we're a little bit more conscious of these signals But I think everybody's conscious of these signals. If you act like an idiot, people are going to think you're an idiot.
0: Yes. And I think you know, one of the things that I've, you, you stress in all of your stories, it's about good marketing is about knowing your customers and helping them achieve something they want to achieve in the lowest possible cost to their time and effort. If you can do that, you can win. Right? Yes. We've never talked about a 30-second Super Bowl advert yet. So I'm very happy about that, right? Because typically all marketers tend to gravitate towards that. So what you've said is there is room for that kind of advertising and it can work. It's just another medium. But the way consumers interact with that medium is very different from a digital medium.
1: Yeah. They, look, for certain brands, a Super Bowl ad is highly effective. But here's what here's what I find amazing about the Super Bowl. Let's just go down that. And and most people are not thinking about whether or not to advertise their brand during the Super Bowl, but I think the lessons are are still quite valid. Right. So the reason they can sell so much Super Bowl advertising is there's nothing like it on the planet and there's certainly nothing like it in this country, which is the entire country. It feels like gets together for this unofficial holiday. Where we're all watching the same content. We're all enjoying this festive mood and we actually go out of our way to check out the ads. We absolutely love the ads. So, you know, most of the time a TV ad comes on, it turns out 89% of millennials don't pay attention to TV ads and they ran an ethnographic study. And what they expected to find with the ethnographic study, and the ethnographic study means like they literally went into people's homes to watch how they interact with life, including TV and TV ads. And their theory was that most millennials don't watch TV ads. But what they thought would happen is that people just DVR over the TV ads. So they record the show and the ads come on, they fast forward. It turns out that many more people than they thought don't watch the ads, but the reason isn't because they DVR over it, they just look down at the supercomputer that sits in their pocket. Mm-hmm. Ad comes on, they look down, they poke around on their cell device, they do something on TikTok, Instagram, whatever the case may be, text with some friends. And then when the show comes back on or the game, ball game comes back on, they look back up. So literally nine out of 10, 89% of millennials are not paying attention to the TV ads. But the TV companies are telling Nike and in Mercedes, et cetera, People are watching the ads because the ads are getting delivered the sound is on but people aren't paying attention so that is a profound finding right this next generation that literally has trillions of dollars in purchasing power they're not watching these traditional TV ads now going back to your point about the Super Bowl that doesn't happen during the Super Bowl people actually watch Super Bowl ads And, you know, it goes back to the machine. There's these huge articles. There's entire uh, magazine editions, ad week, ad age. They turn themselves completely over to the Super Bowl and they tell the stories about the ads, the people who make the ads, the brands, the results. It becomes this self-serving system where everybody's investing in these ads. But, you know, I think you and me and a lot of your listeners have probably had a similar experience where you look around during the Super Bowl ads and what you see is, The first set of ads, everybody loves it, everybody pays attention. The second set of ads, almost everybody loves it, almost everybody's paying attention. But you get into the first quarter, the second quarter, certainly the third and fourth quarter, people are eating chicken wings, they're drunk on beer, sometimes there's music playing, there's conversations, maybe some people actually care about the football game, are talking about the football game. Less and less people are actually paying attention to those ads during the game. But still, like if you're Budweiser, great place to be. You know, if you're Coca-Cola, great place to be because you're part of pop culture and the Super Bowl is part of pop culture. But here's one of the great experiences or the examples that I brought up in the book is a few years ago, Jeep ran a Super Bowl ad with Bill Murray in it and the media right after it clear ad Age, ad week usa today wall street journal everyone said this was the greatest ad it was there it was the play on groundhog day right and and how jeep breaks you out of groundhog day so let's just assume for a second you know they spent ballpark 10 to 15 million dollars on that ad by the time they ran a few it was a 60 second spot they had to pay bill murray the production company research writers ad age etc well it worked everybody loved the ad i actually didn't even see the ad because i was one of those people drinking beer or eating chicken wings but you know power to them i heard about the ad i watched it on youtube i was just curious so i went to jeep.com and i went to caranddriver.com nothing there was like totally insufficient information about that product when i went on the consumer journey so let's just give them credit for a second that says that was a great ad and it did its job i think we can argue like for 15 million dollars you can hire 100 harvard graduates for a year you can find an ad agency a, a, a small agency like questus and hire the entire team for a year for that kind of money you can hire an incredible technology team and make your barnes and noble website absolutely flawless for that kind of money but let's just say for example it was a great investment okay but what about the rest of the journey? How come when I went to jeep.com, I couldn't find the information I was looking for? How come when I went to caranddriver.com, I couldn't find the information I was looking for? So once again, I think you know the machine is getting in the way. We think these interruptive ads are the cat's meow, and they do incredible things. And even when they do incredible things, we're still asking it to do too much. We have to look at the entire journey and all of the information that people are looking for, which by the way, in the Bill Murray example, it's a great emotional story. Great, but what about all that functional information that people are looking for? The price, the features, the functionality, the aesthetics, the interior, the exterior, all of that is information that people are looking for, and if you can't provide it in the right place at the right time, you're going to lose people in the journey. You might even send them over to the competition because you told an emotional story. You got people interested in the category, but once they get frustrated with your brand, your competition is literally one click away.
0: So this is an interesting example whereby the ad worked apparently, but when people go to the uh, Jeep website, there's so much leakage because there's nothing to keep them on the journey. And that's a pretty common problem, right? So in, in your latest book, you had a very interesting statistic which jumped out at me, It said that 80% of the market value of U.S. corporations was contained in tangible assets such as buildings and machinery about 40 years ago, according to some uh, economists. I think it was Colin Colin Mayer. And then you say that today, 85% of a corporation's total value is based on intangibles. Yeah, man. That's That's, that's That's a striking statistic.
1: Mind blowing, mind blowing. And, and you just nailed it. I'm going to I'm going to say it again, because I think for your listeners, it's, it's just such a powerful finding by Colin Mayer, an economist. 80 percent of a company's value just 40 years ago existed in tangible items. It was your warehouse, yeah. your products, your Everything. machinery, etc. Now it's 80, maybe 85 percent is not based on things that you hold in your hand, but things that you hold in your head, your intellectual property, your overall brand identity. Brands are the most important asset that a company has. And that goes back to your, your uh, the earlier point we were making about shortcuts. Like There's just way too much information out there in this world, we're looking for shortcuts. And the shortcuts that we're looking for, for most of us, is a brand, right? You go back to the Rolls-Royce and the Bentley dealership that you mentioned, you know that you're gonna get one of the highest quality products in the entire world. You know that you're gonna get some of the best customer service in the entire world. Why? Because you have that cognitive shortcut you know the Rolls-Royce brand, you know the Bentley brand. Virtually everybody knows what those brands stand for, even if they're not in their target audience. And these brands are worth billions and billions of dollars. I apologize, I don't have it memorized, but like, I think it's the Google's brand, just the brand name alone is worth ballpark $420 billion. Apple, like, I'm, I'm let me just generalize it because I don't have it memorized. Apple, Amazon, google those brands are all worth in the neighborhood of 400 billion dollars you take one or two of those and it's greater than the gdp of greece you take those top three and it's greater than the gdp of russia which is why widely recognized as one of the world's great superpowers so the most important thing that we can do as people who run brands, as marketers, as executives, is build that brand identity, is build that brand equity. And it goes all the way back to your first point. It's about leadership. It's about culture. It's about purpose. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when you have that foundation in place, it's about empowering people as they go through the entire customer journey.
0: Well said. And I also want to make a very important point here. When we think of it Intellectual property and brand equity driving 80% of the value of the average corporation. When we think of intellectual property, we tend to be obsessed with research and development. But intellectual property also refers to the understanding tools and processes a company has to manage customers on their digital journey. It's something you don't go to university to learn. There's no PhD in it. There's no Nobel Prize for it. But the company that masters that, like Amazon, is ahead of a company that doesn't master it. And that's the thing that we tend to forget when you think about intellectual property is not just R&D. It's all the systems and processes you have to do fairly mundane things that make the experience good for customers. Because when I talk to you know, banks and so on about intellectual property, yeah, they'll tell me about all the code they're writing. But I was just downstairs in your wealth management branch, and let me tell you, it was a bad experience. That's intellectual property, Right. But we get so obsessed about the uh, stuff that you can hire scientists to do. Yes, that's important as well. But it's everything that you're doing here. So I really enjoyed this podcast, Jeff. It was amazing. Is there anything you want our audience to know before we wrap up? No,
1: I think we've hit some some great points. I love the way you've summarized some of the stuff that it's taken me decades to learn. Uh, I think the podcast is great, and I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it was fabulous having you. Hopefully, we can speak again. But I think you're doing some amazing work. I like the way you think about marketing. I really like the fact that you don't see it as a marketing problem. It's a pro of how can a business make a customer feel empowered to solve whatever problem is important to them.
1: Make the business better and your advertising will work fundamentally harder.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeff. Speak soon.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate wow.
0: it.